and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, an award-winning podcast series all about coronavirus as seen through the multifaceted lens of researchers and staff here at UCL. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and throughout the pandemic, your guide to everything coronavirus. And I do mean everything. We've brought you the latest research and stories on being in lockdown, getting out of lockdown, how the pandemic started, how it might end, how people have been coping, who's been struggling, and the economic, engineering, medical, social, behavioural and even artistic perspectives on lockdown. Now, when we began this series, I think we all imagined that we would run out of stories to tell by well, week eight tops. Yet here we are in week 17. The pandemic is here to stay. UCL's researchers have so much more to tell us and we have loads of great ideas for episodes to come. So to make sure that we're firing on all cylinders, we're going to make a short pit stop for a bit of R&R, if that's okay by you, and we'll be back at the end of August. Meanwhile, for today's episode, we thought we would look not at coronavirus itself, but the impact that it's had on other illnesses, which of course haven't gone away. With me today are a cardiologist, a neurologist and an oncologist to understand how lockdown and social distancing measures have affected normal healthcare. So let's get started. My first guest this week is Amitava Banerjee, also known as Ami, who's an associate professor in clinical data science at UCL and an honorary consultant cardiologist at UCL Hospitals. Ami is a specialist in heart failure and combines his work as a practitioner and as a researcher in epidemiology, biostatistics and public health to improve healthcare for patients and leads on cutting-edge research projects on the nature of cardiovascular diseases and the efficacy of medication assessment. My second guest on this episode is Professor Georgios Lirizopoulos, Yorias is a professor of cancer epidemiology and leads on UCL's Epidemiology of Cancer Healthcare and Outcomes group. His research focuses on how cancer is tested and diagnosed and variations in treatment management and patient experience. My final guest this week is Professor Nick Ward, a professor of clinical neurology and neurorehabilitation at the UCL Queen Square Institute of Neurology. Nick also works with SAMU, a charity that supports and aids the recovery of people with brain injuries. In partnership, UCL and SAMU have been making brain injury rehabilitation accessible online during lockdown. Amy, let's start with the big picture. We've all been focused on deaths from COVID-19, but there's been a wider impact, hasn't there? Yes, certainly. Um, I think excess mortality, excess deaths uh, have have been uh, in, in, in the news and in our minds because the Office of National Statistics has been um, diligently producing weekly statistics throughout the pandemic. But firstly, even un, under um, the heading of mortality, it's not just COVID-related mortality, but there's been a peak which matched the peak in the COVID deaths in non-COVID deaths. So whether it was cardiovascular disease or cancer in March, April, there was was a peak reported by Office of National Statistics. And also there's what we call increased morbidity. So that's the the quality of life other than the the effect on mortality, whether that's having to be admitted to hospital, whether that's 
um, being able to follow your usual activities in your daily life. Those, those have all been affected during this time. So how have these non-COVID related deaths risen during lockdown? What do you think are the main reasons? I mean, obviously, you know, it changes in lifestyle, but what about people who were already unwell? So you're right to use the, the term during lockdown, but also there were some in, increase in non-COVID deaths observed early on, even pre-lockdown. Now, that could be related to coding or miscoding in, in the early stages where, for example, in care homes, there, there were some COVID deaths perhaps that were attributed to other causes. And it also could be as a result of various large-scale insults to society, such as a pandemic, you do see increases in, for example, A&E attendances, rates of heart attacks, and that has also been written about. But during lockdown itself, there are several reasons that that we've seen an increase. Firstly, there has been a, a profound pressure on health systems and healthcare services, such that uh, the focus on COVID has meant that we, we've not been able to provide all of the, the care for other diseases that we would want. We were able to meet that um, required capacity because, for example, operating lists were cancelled, clinics have been cancelled and so on. But then also there's been a change in behaviour of both patients and of clinicians uh, such that um, patients might have been less likely to attend hospital with their symptoms of chest pain or their history of cancer or to seek treatment. And so this this has, has led to a situation where we have seen reduced diagnosis and reduced treatment in the non-COVID diseases. And a lot of people must have been very frightened, particularly with the condition that you look after so much with heart failure, because people are uh, elderly in the main with heart failure, and they fear that if they get COVID-19, that will be the end of them. You raise a a, a great point, Vivian, that uh, there's a direct effect in, in people with underlying conditions such as cardiovascular disease, where they have an increased risk of having severe infection or dying from coronavirus in the first place. So there's a direct effect on people with cardiovascular disease. But there's also this indirect effect, which we're talking about here, which is that the services for cardiovascular disease may be affected by the pandemic. So so the the patients I've been looking after, for the most part, we're not on the official list of patients to be shielded that the government announced uh, on March 22nd, but based on uh, discretion of themselves and their doctors, many of our patients with heart failure and cardiovascular diseases have been staying at home and shielding because of their age and other comorbidities, which made them um, feel that their risk was too high. And that's not just during lockdown, there's difficulties of whether deciding whether they want to return to work or should return to work, how soon they should think about doing other activities and so on. So it's a very confusing time all round. Are we back to normal levels of attendance yet? In my own specialty, I don't think we have evidence that we are back to uh, fully normal attendance. 
that's for two reasons. Uh, firstly, there's some trepidation to release all the existing capacity in case of second waves, as we are still easing lockdown and in the process of various measures, but also because opening up, for example, surgical uh, lists and procedure lists is a different proposition in the COVID era where you have to be doing much more stringent cleaning and other measures in between cases. So the, the number of cases that you can do has also been reduced. So I think it will be some time in reality before we can return to normal and inverted commas. So it's really in your field, it's had a very considerable impact. Let me turn to Yorios now. How has coronavirus and lockdown impacted cancer patients? It's one of the questions, one of the uh, disease areas that, as my previous colleague, uh, Dr. Banerjee, mentioned, it has been um, uh, indirectly affected by the pandemic. And uh, these indirect effects are across the board and across the spectrum of uh, services and uh, actions that need to happen when patients first of all develop symptoms uh, of uh, that may be due to cancer or even uh, when in the pre-COVID era they were getting an invitation to attend for screening for for example for colorectal cancer to complete the screening test or attend for colonoscopy all the way down to uh, treatment of diagnosed patients. And treatment for cancer is quite complex. It takes uh, several uh, different uh, events. For example, somebody may have surgery. They will, of course, have a lot of diagnostic investigations before surgery. Uh, They then may go on to have uh, either radiotherapy or chemotherapy, and this will be requiring repeat attendances to hospital and uh, and so on. So all this very complex uh, healthcare delivery system has been disrupted because of capacity constraints, because of infection control considerations at the peak of the epidemic. And of course, as um, Dr. Banerjee was mentioning earlier, also because of uh, patient behavior having been affected by the epidemic. So it is an, cancer is an example of the many diseases that uh, the healthcare delivery system has been disrupted very seriously. So you're seeing likely impact from people not going to screening. You're seeing likely impact from people having their treatments interrupted. And presumably you're also going to see deaths which will occur earlier than they should going on for several years ahead because people's cancers will not have been diagnosed perhaps until a later stage and we know that treatment is less effective and more difficult the later the cancer is diagnosed. Yes unfortunately this seems to be a mathematical truth although of course because of the short intervening period between the epidemic and where we're now we don't have a fully robust observed data although modeling studies seem to suggest exactly what you mentioned. The other complexity here, it applies to cancer, perhaps it applies to other disease areas as well. The accumulation of this negative impact and excess mortality, that is, if you want disease-specific, is going to accrue differentially for different cohorts of patients. So, for example, the diagnosed patients who might have had deferred or altered treatment regimens from what would have been perhaps optimal 
may be at more immediate risk, but the patients who uh, whose diagnosis has been delayed because the screening program has uh, has stopped uh, working temporarily, that kind of harm, if you want, will only be seen after several years in the future. So it is not an easy task uh, to quantify exactly how big this impact will be. And of course, one doesn't wish, uh, does wish it for it to be, for any harm to be minimized by more rigorous, more successful control of the pandemic and more uh, more well-resourced ability of the healthcare system to continue to operate as much as normal in spite of the pandemic. What's the backlog like for diagnostics? Because that's often the rate-limiting step in cancer, isn't it? It's the it's the diagnostics, the MRI scans, you know, the, the various procedures that are used to diagnose the endoscopies, for instance. I honestly cannot give you an, an exact uh, hard answer on on that. And frankly, I don't even know if uh, it's very well known because we will have a if you want partial picture known to different hospitals and different services right now. But I'm not aware of that uh, evidence, which will be very variable for different diagnostic investigations. I think it will be substantial and it's likely to be a moving feast because, of course, colleagues will be doing their best to um, get over the hump, but I don't know how bad it is right now. Do you think that there are still patients who are worried about coming in and not confident enough to book an appointment? And, And what do you think can be done to persuade them that it's okay to come in now? Yeah, I will start from the latter. I think the, and again, I think this is not unique to cancer, I would imagine applies to all other disease areas. The first step in mitigating the harm that is being inflicted upon patients with other diseases is to keep COVID under control. Uh, If COVID-19 is managed well, if as society, because that's a societal effort, it will maintain the activity levels low, then we have a chance of uh, mitigating the indirect harm that is being done to patients with other diseases from healthcare-related disruption. So that I think that's that's the, that's the key. And to answer your first question, I suppose the uh, absolutely the more uh, safe uh, we we can have a service in terms of infection control risk managing that and i think this is being managed very well right now the more people can be confident to seek help if you want quote unquote as normal i think i think there is an issue of uh, or there is a challenge rather to a message to get through to all patients and the relatives that nss is normal for uh, primary care is open for consultations Although there is, of course, a risk that some uh, this message is not getting through to absolutely everyone. Thank you very much for that. You are listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus you'd like our researchers to answer, email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk or tweet at UCL. We'd also really appreciate it if you could complete our little survey, which can be found on the UCL Minds website if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. Let me now turn to my third guest uh, today, because a regular theme on this podcast is of people and organisations adapting to lockdown and working out 
how to make things work remotely. Uh, Nick, I know that this is something that you and your team have achieved in uh, brain injury rehab. Firstly, tell me a bit about the work that you did before lockdown. So I'm interested in um, brain injury, which is essentially made up of people who have had trauma to the head. So what we call traumatic brain injury, usually due to things like road traffic accidents, falls uh, or assaults, or due to stroke in which you have a disruption to the blood flow to part of the brain leading to death of a number of, uh, of brain cells. We're interested in the uh, rehabilitation of people with brain injury because this is the main form of treatment. Most of the focus generally in medicine is at the emergency end so that we're, we're good at the first few hours and days after brain injury. So this is, this is really about saving lives. But after this, patients may stay in hospital for their rehabilitation or they may be discharged home for rehab to continue in the community. But rehab services are generally fairly under-resourced, especially in the community. So we're not really providing appropriate levels of support and treatment for patients. We're essentially underdosing them. So some of the things that we're doing at Queen Square are really to address how we can increase the dose and intensity of some of the rehabilitation interventions that these people require. And how has pandemic affected this work? Uh, I mean, it, it's in the ways that we've already talked about, I mean, it's had a really wide-ranging uh, effect. But in the early phases of the pandemic response, the focus was obviously on saving lives. But the main impact on stroke and brain injury patients was that their rehabilitation programs were going to be cut short because of the perceived need to free up acute beds and because it was felt that community rehab teams were not really able to go in and support them. So we felt that we were going to be left with a cohort of people who are now at home much earlier than normal who were not going to receive any rehabilitation treatment or support and essentially increased levels of social isolation and, and generally feeling abandoned. So we kind of realised that we needed to come up with a new way of, uh, of reaching out to these patients in a way that we hadn't, hadn't done before. And at the same time, as you mentioned before, UCL's been partnering with the same U charity, which was set up by the actress Emilia Clark and her mother, to look at ways of improving treatment and support for people with brain injury. So same U wanted to do something useful in the pandemic, but something that was related to their particular vision in uh, promoting recovery from brain injury. So they did some fundraising for the UCL Coronavirus Response Fund, and we used the money to set up the Neuro Rehabilitation Online Programme, or Enrol as we call it. So Enrol for us was a completely new service. So and it was established very quickly uh, in order to provide group based online virtual rehabilitation and support for patients who had recently been discharged and probably been discharged earlier than they would otherwise have done. And what this program did was it allowed one or two clinicians or therapists to work with groups of between say two and 15 patients at a time with the with the therapist remote and the patients in their own home and the, the range of groups that we were able to offer were things like functional fitness working on patients gait and balance arm and hand function but also communication and cognitive difficulties uh, emotional problems as well as things like fatigue management and also being able to reach out to the carers of those patients as well and the aim overall was really to complement, not really replace the community rehab teams. But as I said before, the community rehab teams were stretched prior to uh, COVID-19. So at the beginning, this was really one of the only things that was able to get into these people's homes to help them. And how's it gone down? So pretty well, actually. I mean, I think there were some anxieties about whether people would cope with doing uh, things online. Out of all the We've probably, we'll have treated about 90 patients so far. We've only had three 
who couldn't participate for uh, technical reasons. So I think patients have generally loved it, to be honest. I mean, we're going to have some formal evaluation of the program soon, quantitative and qualitative. Uh, but the informal feedback, the kind of things, the quotes that patients send us that we put out on our uh, Twitter account is, you know, is very heartwarming. The other thing that I think people were anxious about was the idea of doing this kind of thing in groups maybe not a very English thing, but actually people really warmed to it. And we think, you know, that forming the, the, the peer support that came out of those groups is really important. And clearly some of those patients are going to stay in contact with each other after the programme has stopped. So hearing the, these, you know, these stories is quite powerful. And actually there's, there's one, there's a, I mean, we have quite a few really nice quotes, but there's one particular quote uh, one of our patients sent in in relation to the, her worry about participating in groups. And she said, it reminds me of when I was at school coming out of an exam, thinking I was the only one who found the exam hard. But once we'd all shared our feelings, I realised that we all thought the same and it was kind of reassuring. So it's that kind of um, engendering that kind of, not just that you're in the hands of uh, high quality clinicians, but also that peer support is actually is very powerful. And actually, uh, I must ask you this, but I want, because I was wondering, are you one of the few specialties that actually has seen a decrease in numbers because there were actually decreasing incidents of brain injuries because there weren't, you know, cyclists out, there weren't cars on the road. Yeah, so the, so in terms of stroke, it's definitely true that the numbers of people who were presenting to the acute services dropped quite dramatically, you know, probably down to about 50%. And with traumatic brain injury, we don't have very good numbers, but you're probably right. People were not out and about, so they were less likely to have those kinds of injuries. So the kind of the worries that we had at the beginning that pe- that we'd have uh, people coming through the the stroke and brain injury pathways as normal, but we would have to essentially move them through a, the normal pathway much much quicker. Didn't didn't quite come to pass actually. But of course, that stores up a problem down the line in that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen to those patients. We don't know when they're going to present because it's it's certainly we don't believe that the, the numbers of people who were suffering from stroke dramatically reduced. It's, we just think that they just didn't present at the moment. It's another one of the COVID mysteries, isn't it? Yeah. There, are, there are many of them. What I wanted to ask you all, because Nick has really illustrated something, that the way that services have pivoted uh, and online, which perhaps might have been coming anyway, has suddenly had to arrive very quickly indeed. But actually, it's an opportunity. You know, it's been terrible, but it is also an opportunity. Uh, Urias, I wondered whether that was true for oncology. I mean, have you been able to, for instance, move over to a much more home-based care system? Yes, these kind of innovations are indeed um, part of the change in the healthcare delivery system that is taking place for all disease areas. And yes, it also affects the cancer pathways. Uh, starting from primary care, as you, uh, as we have uh, heard and read from our primary care colleagues, we have a critical role in the early stages in the early part of the spectrum of the cancer pathway. They have um, transformed the model of consultation into digital by default, of course, as, a, as an initial triage, um, and people can be seen in person should there be a need. Similar innovations have been reported in the follow-up of cancer patients. Uh, you know, these are patients who are diagnosed and treated, 
and they require aftercare for checks. Uh, and some of those now have are being done um, online. Of course, there is a limit to how much you can go with substitution of uh, um, healthcare encounter related uh, events with uh, digital uh, appointments. Clearly, some you know there are some core diagnostic investigations and some uh, treatments have to be delivered in physical spaces. But yes, definitely there is innovation and for the good. And once COVID has been you know has gone, some of these innovations will still be with us and they will be to the benefit of patient care and patient experience and perhaps even to the efficiency by which we run our healthcare system. And is that is that what you've seen, Ami, as uh, as well? I mean, is there anything particular that you think has has already changed? There's there's no question that COVID has forced a change in um, the way uh, digital innovation has happened. For example, in a period of a week or two at the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to access electronic health records and online clinics in a way that we hadn't been able to, in some cases, for years. And that has changed the way we can do things. But as Yoria says, that I don't think we can say that it's a panacea for or a replacement for face-to-face care and whether it's diagnosis or treatment, some of those things do undoubtedly require seeing people face-to-face and and my concern is that we know that there are long standing inequalities in in healthcare even in in a um, publicly funded system like the nhs based on you know socioeconomic status based on ethnicity for example and uh, if we're not careful and paying attention then digital health and innovation could broaden those inequalities rather than uh, you know, being an equaliser. So, because um, it's reliant on digital literacy, on health literacy as well. But it's also done, I, I think, one of those things that's been needed for a long time, which is appointments in outpatients, where, you know, some were needed, but actually some of those appointments probably weren't needed and has put an additional burden on patients. I would say the opposite in some ways of what you said, that some of my long-term patients have, particularly those who've been shielding, have greatly valued even a phone call sometimes because that's the social contact that they've been missing. Uh, and, and having a continuity of care like that is, is actually one of the great benefits of the NHS, whether in primary care or secondary care. Ami's outpatient appointments are all totally with point. <laughs> Um, Let me stay with you, Amy, and just ask you whether there are any structures or protocols that you'd like to see put in place to make healthcare lockdown-proof. I I do think that the the harsh reality is that the non-COVID effects of this pandemic were... preventable, if not at least reducible, by acting earlier and in a coordinated fashion with clear messaging. And by that, I mean earlier lockdown. By that, I mean uh, coordinated 
testing and, and tracing and so on. So that that actually is is as much a priority as pushing for reopening all of the the services. Um, but we you know we are where we are. And now I, I would say, you know, when you say lockdown proof, I think the the most important thing is to educate both the public and patients and and as well as uh, as health professionals that chronic diseases and the non-COVID diseases, which are also acute, don't go away during a pandemic. And so people who need to seek healthcare must be able to do so during that time. So, but but I, I don't have a, a magic bullet or a protocol to you know um, predict these things. But maybe one thing I'd say is that emergency preparedness or pandemic preparedness hasn't traditionally included non-infectious diseases or chronic disease treatment or things like neurorehabilitation. Uh, I think we've all learned that we should have a much broader view of, of preparedness. Yorias, what's uh, the view from the oncology side? Because actually during COVID, what we saw was some hospitals opening, which were dedicated to cancer, which were kind of de- uh, COVID-free, or hopefully COVID-free zones. Do you think we'll see more of that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so definitely in the in the phase we're now, and who knows, it may last for another uh, several months at least. So maybe if you want infection control, which has always been uh, part of the background activity in uh, in hospitals and GP practices, maybe uh, will, has been transformed. It will, it will it will be a different a different activity in the coming months with. Uh, Hopefully, more regular screening of um, uh, staff. Now that uh, it seems that the diagnostic technologies that can uh, test for COVID become more uh, easily accessible, and uh, they allow for much more regular testing, that can be a great uh, breakthrough. I think, in terms of protecting services and protecting staff and protecting patients, therefore, and of course, in terms of the going back to some of the discussions we had with Amit and uh, Nick. Uh, definitely the uh, consideration uh, I mean it was always a, always a, a task and an, an aim not to have um, superfluous healthcare encounters but uh, even more so in the in the current phase and for in the future Nick how about from your point of view is online rehab something that you're going to uh, stick with and how are you going to uh, sort of uh, future-proof your services. Yes, I mean it's a it's a really good question. I mean, coming to the the question of doing um, online medicine, I think for screening, you know, online consultations are quite good. Partly for the reasons that you that you mentioned, especially in a hospital in central London where we might be bringing patients from all around the country, and sometimes you feel that it wasn't necessary to bring them from that far away. So I think for screening, it'll be useful, but for treatment. In something like neurorehabilitation, where there are multiple different types of treatment, they're all quite complex and they interact. I think we'll have to see. I mean, it's definitely true that when we started up Enroll, we saw it as a pragmatic means to an end to deal with a unique situation. And none of us thought that it was a gold standard treatment. But I'd have to say that we've, you know, there are things that we have learnt and that have been surprised by by this mode of 
provision of rehab services. It, it's not it's not going to take over because you know there are aspects to it that, that don't quite work. There's definitely uh, elements, key elements that uh, require face to face consultations and treatment. But some of the things that we talked about already demonstrate that this form has its own intrinsic value. So we talked about the peer to peer support. Uh, we talked about uh, the ability to deliver cognitive and emotional support in a way that's not really done in community rehab, reducing social isolation. So, I mean, what we're going to have to do within role is really pick the bones out of it and understand what are the active ingredients and then how we embed those in things like community rehabilitation services and move forward. So we just we just have to learn the lessons about what the good bits are, but not think that we, that, I mean, this is not going to be a cost-cutting exercise. It's not necessarily cheaper to deliver online therapy. You, you, may be able to, you may be able to reach more people, but it's not necessarily the case. And there are lots of things that we're going to need to learn about that. Listening to all of you, actually, we've already come a long way, it seems to me, because right at the very beginning, when it was all utter chaos and actually order is being created and there are some extraordinary opportunities that have come up to change medicine for the better and probably at a time when it was already poised to do that it's been a pleasure having all three of you here and thank you for taking time out of your very busy clinical lives you've been listening to coronavirus the whole story the episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the very splendid Keris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr. Amitava Banerjee and Professors Yorios Lirizopoulos and Nick Ward. And if you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit to ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And whilst you're there, just a reminder fill out our survey. The podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Well, Harris and I are going to be packing our buckets and spades and taking a short break. It's been absolutely wonderful presenting this podcast every week for 17 weeks. I'm not sure we thought that it would be that long, but it's been splendid. We're going to be back again at the end of August uh, with more updates and interviews from UCL researchers. And I'll be looking forward to being with you once more. Bye for now.